many of the white newspapers of the South who are uh, mouthpieces for New South ideology are also very active in lynchings. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available at journalism-history.org slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. For generations after the Civil War, the white Southern press was committed to constructing an anti-democratic world of white supremacy, with little regard for black civil, social, political, or even human rights. This excerpt comes from the new book, Journalism and Jim Crow, White Supremacy and the Black Struggle for a New America, which is sure to be a frontrunner for a number of book awards. The book examines the role that journalism played in creating and maintaining Jim Crow oppression that included support for lynching, segregation, forced labor, voter suppression, and a racist criminal justice system. On today's show, we have one of the book's editors, Kathy Roberts Ford of the University of Massachusetts Amherst, with us. Kathy, welcome to the show. I know you've been working on this book for quite a while now, long before the murder of George Floyd and the social justice protests in 2020. So what prompted you to write this book? Well, it all began, gosh, it must be well, a number of years ago now. Um, I suppose it began in the spring of 2015. I was teaching this class that I developed with Sid Bedingfield at the University of South Carolina when we were both on the faculty there. It's a class called um, The Black Freedom Struggle in the Press. And so I was teaching this class here um, in, at Amherst, at UMass Amherst, where I'm on the faculty. And I was teaching students about convict labor and in the South and after, you know, in the late 19th century. And one of my students, was so outraged that he had never been taught that history, even though he had been, he was quite well-versed in American history, quite well-versed in a version of American history that centered the Black experience. He did not know about convict labor. And so he asked if we, do, if we could do an independent study. I said, yes, as long as we found a research project that we could do together and it had to involve the press because I'm a journalism historian. And so we started reading everything we could get our hands on about convict labor and looking for some kind of press angle. Um, and what we discovered after you know, several months of reading was this really interesting case in Florida where uh, a standard oil tycoon, who was Henry Rockefeller's partner by the name of Henry Flagler, uh, bought control of newspapers um, white newspapers in Florida in order to control public information and public discourse about his doings in the state. And what he was up to in the state was building railroads and resorts. Um, and he basically built a tourist empire along the eastern shore of Florida. Uh, and in doing that, some of the, some of what he 
wanted to control information about was his use of debt peonage, that is, um, immigrants from Northern Europe to build his extension across um, the ocean to the Florida Keys, the railroad extension. And, and he used convict labor as well. But there was a Justice Department investigation of his peonage practices, his labor practices, and he was able to control uh, public knowledge and discourse about this in Florida, in any case, by his control of the Florida press. He was not able to control public discourse uh, in muckraking magazine articles that were published in the country um, and newspaper, external newspaper coverage of his, uh, of the Justice Department's investigation into his, into his uh, organization. Um, but, you know, he won the, he won the day at the end because he was able to, um, at the end, kind of quash this, this story in Florida and rehabilitate his name um, across history, even up to the present moment. So that's where the project began. It began by working with an undergraduate student. We wrote the story. We researched the story for a couple of years. And as I, the more we researched it, the more I came to see there's, this stuff is happening. All things like this are happening all over the South from kind of the, the end of reconstruction all the way up through at least the 1920s, 1930s. And so I asked Sid Bedingfield if he would join me to edit a book on this project, on, on this subject of um, the role of white newspaper editors and publishers in building white supremacy in the South. And we put the book together from there. Before we get into the depth of it, I think you make a really interesting point early on in the book that I think is important to address. You note the concern about presentism or applying what we know today versus presenting information within the context of the particular time being studied in history itself. Along with that, some people like to complain about revisionist history, not understanding that there are many reasons why the framing of history changes. But I wanted to give you a chance uh, to first discuss how you address this as historians. Yeah, so let me first talk a little bit about the um, main argument of the book and then explain <laughs> kind of why, you know, why we do take on this you know, potential criticism that we're being presentists um, in our in our project. And um, so the book makes what we think is a fairly, um, a fairly new argument, which is that from the end of Reconstruction, the beginning, or I guess, toward the end of Reconstruction, all the way up through at least um, the 1930s, White, there were many white newspaper publishers and editors in urban areas across the South who were political actors. They may not have held political office, but they played um, central roles in building the political systems, the economic systems, and the social orders of their communities, of their states. And in doing so, they worked to build white supremacy. And, you know, I think journalism historians have for quite a while been working on uncovering and discussing kind of the role in which white newspapers, particularly in the South, um, use their storytelling capabilities, the narratives, right, to, um, to or the soft power of their papers in 
service of white supremacy or in racism. Um, but I, I don't think we have understood particularly well uh, until very recently, and we're making the argument in this book, that these newspapers, many of these newspapers and their leaders were straight up political actors, and they used the hard power of their institutions um, and worked hand in glove with political officials, public officials, and business leaders to self-consciously and actively build white supremacist political economies. That's a very different kind of argument and a very different kind of understanding of the role of newspapers during a really critical moment in American history, which is kind of the end of that really extraordinary experiment in multiracial or at least biracial government and democracy that was reconstruction in the South after the Civil War. So that's our argument, and we've got lots of evidence to back it up. Um, but I think we we worried a little bit that folks might think, you know, we, we take on, for example, I write a, a history of Henry W. Grady, who was the managing editor of the Atlanta Constitution during the 1880s, in which I, 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 I discussed the ways in which he was a, a, a significant architect, if not a key architect, of white supremacy in the New South. And that's, uh, that runs quite counter to, to most historical, pop, certainly popular historical understandings of Henry W. Grady. And so kind of in order to, in order to, you know, just imagining folks who might think we're applying present day values to um, an understanding of Grady, Sid and I make the argument in the introduction that we're not, we don't think we're being presentists. Um, and in fact, if you look at what Black journalists of the day had to say about Grady, they say basically what we're saying in this book. And so Black journalists of his era were saying much of what we're saying in Journalism and Jim Crow about Grady and about other uh, white urban news leaders. Also, there were white writers and intellectuals and thought leaders of the day who said much the same as the black journalists of the day, much the same as what we're saying now. For example, George Washington Cable and Albion Terje. So um, even though so many folks, for example, think of Grady as a racial moderate, I don't. Um, I don't think he was a moderate. Um, I think he, I mean, if, you, if a moderate is a straight up white supremacist, okay. But I think that the I think that his legacy has not been properly understood as a journalist and as someone who was a political actor. Jim Crow laws enforcing anti-black racism in everything from schools to transportation to voting to swimming pools to other public places officially existed from the 1870s all the way up to 1965. We often hear in journalism history that the notion of objectivity in journalism took hold in the early 1900s. So there's this concept that the mainstream press was, you know, so to speak, objective for a large portion of this Jim Crow time period, whereas the black press gets a label of being an advocacy press. So how does your book challenge this journalism history of objectivity and advocacy? That is such a good question. Uh, well, I, and I think 
you know, certainly even in the late 19th century, certainly in the 1880s, uh, when Henry Grady was working for the Atlanta Constitution in the 1890s, when he would write about the role of Josephus Daniel of the Raleigh News and Observer in the Democratic Party's white supremacist plan to steal the 1898 uh, election and to, um, and to drive a wedge between uh, uh, white and black uh, folks of North Carolina who were working together in a populist movement. Um, and actually the Democratic Party in North Carolina at that time planned uh, a campaign of violence in order to take control of uh, the vote and the election and eventually planned a coup d'etat in Wilmington, which was a black majority city and was a, a place of um, that they understood as a, a, a place where black political power was growing in the state. Um, and so, you know, at that, in covering those events or actually being actively involved in, in, in these events, the white press was often involved in disinformation campaigns. So even though during that same time period, the 1880s, 1890s, there had already was emerging and and if you if you read the trade the journals and trade publications of the times, all kinds of the key ideas that later in the early 20th century converged to become the objective method of journalism. Um, I think most well articulated by Walter Lippmann, most famously articulated by by Walter Lippmann. So you had all the these other these uh, norms and journalistic practices in the 1880s and 1890s that later became objectivity. And this was uh, a reliance on facts, a reliance on uh, an obeisance to accuracy, to some degree of independence um, and neutrality. So already there were these kinds of values attached to journalism that we see not being practiced or being, um, if they were practiced, they were they were ignored in many instances in the southern, in the white southern press, as uh, as these news leaders were working to build political economies and social orders that served white interests and Democratic Party interests. So you know, this this idea that uh, during this time period or or, or this what we often think of as uh, ob objectivity versus advocacy um, in press history is, it's not quite accurate. I don't think it's always an accurate way to understand what was happening. If you're looking, if you can actually see that the white press in the South in many, many instances across a long period of time was involved in disinformation campaigns, was involved in, um, cover-ups was involved in um, a kind of journalism that was entirely tied to uh, to, a, to a notion of racial caste and operated uh, with a commitment to racial caste. I, I, I think it, it raises some serious, serious questions, not only in the South, but makes us ask questions about in other parts of the country about when and where journalism was serving profoundly anti-democratic values. I mean, we see that in our own moment. We see that um, in our own day. And so I think because we see um, certain news media outlets these days serving 
uh, anti-democratic goals and values, I think that we it, it allows us to, to think really critically about maybe some of what the stories we've been telling in journalism history are, are more complicated than, um, than we might know. So you discussed certain Southern newspaper editors who particularly played significant roles in the continuation of white supremacy. You've mentioned Henry Grady um, in this conversation today, as well as in the book, and his role in crafting white supremacy in Georgia and the South, and, and that it's been really poorly understood. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention about Grady? Yeah, so I think Grady is a really interesting figure. Um, in the 1880, he becomes managing editor of the Atlanta Constitution in 1880, and he becomes managing editor um, while he's in New York City. The um, he gets news while he's in New York City. He's he's traveled there by train with Victor Newcomb of the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, and um, Victor Newcomb is the vice president at the time of that very powerful railroad, which is making incursions into the South. Grady wants the Louisville and Nashville to come to Atlanta to um, help make the city of Atlanta the gateway of the South, um, which you know, this points to Grady's, one of his, um, what he's well remembered for, and for good reason, is being a great builder of the city and booster for the city of Atlanta. And that's very, very true of Grady. He did a great deal to build Atlanta. He um, helped found uh, Georgia Tech. He uh, brought, he was a, a big proponent of baseball. He, um, he did a lot to, um, to build and protect Atlanta and to turn it into you know, a really important city, not only in Georgia, but the South. Um, but also in 1880, when he becomes managing editor of the Atlanta Constitution, he does so in New York City um, with the help of a loan from Victor Newcomb of the Louisville and Nashville, uh, or actually Newcomb doesn't give him the loan. He introduces him to the financier Cyrus Field who loans Grady $20,000. Then Newcomb um, helps Grady. He advises him in stock speculation um, and Grady very quickly is able to repay Cyrus W. Field for that $20,000 it took him to buy his uh, quarter interest in the Atlanta Constitution and thus become managing editor. Uh, in return for these favors, you know, Grady, not only he learns the lessons of quid pro quo really quickly, he, um, he writes, of course, glowingly about uh, the Louisville and Nashville and, and the Atlanta Constitution. And then he also does favors for Cyrus Field, whose brother is a was a at the time was an associate justice in the Supreme Court, and is running for um, the Democratic nomination for president. And so Grady um, takes on a campaign uh, in this powerful Southern newspaper that he is now managing editor of um, to boost uh, Cyrus Field's brother. And and then in very very short order, like within the same month that Grady becomes managing editor in this deal, he then goes on to um, to broker this backstage political deal um, among three of the men of his uh, famed Atlanta ring, who kind of shifted offices between U.S. Senate seats and the governor's seat in Georgia, um, and essentially one of them all three of whom are owners or have, are, are part owners in the convict lease in Georgia, all 
so all three of them um, are involved in this back deal, uh, this back deal shifting where um, one of the U.S. senators, John Gordon, steps down and Joe Brown, the governor installs Joe Brown in his place. And it involves the Louisville and Nashville Railroad and all kinds of corrupt back deals. And and Grady is the mastermind of it all. And, it, and the you know historians didn't understand this until about 100 years later when historians working in um, the archive found uh, secret codes <laughs> in which Grady had been orchestrating this whole um, this whole deal. Meanwhile, in the Atlanta Constitution, he is uh, where there's been an, an uproar publicly in which uh, the people of Georgia are suspecting that there has been chicanery in, in all of this, in the shifting of office. Uh, Grady is denying it and writing different stories um, in, in the Atlanta Constitution and covered it and he orchestrated a cover up. So these are, I mean, that's just a little bit. That's just how I think that one little story about how, how Grady became Began his tenure at the Atlanta Constitution as managing editor anyway is is revealing um, of who he was as a journalist and editor of the newspaper. And then in short, you know, within that's 1880 and 1886, he becomes becomes nationally famous as the spokesperson for the New South. Um, A lot of historians have celebrated and and popular histories have celebrated his uh his commitment to the new south ideology of industrializing the south attracting northern investment in the south but there was another part of that new south ideology as well so it wasn't only about reconciling the sections the north and the south uh you know several decades after the civil war but it was also very much about disfranchising Black Americans. It was very much about promoting the idea of separate but equal, even though he had no real intention of or commitment to equality. Uh, it was also about um, about claiming a, a, a about building white supremacist systems um, in in the state of in the state of Georgia and across and across the South. And so, you know, if he I think it, I find it quite interesting that Grady is often talked about even still as you know the great reconciler of North and South, whereas he was also the great excluder. He was the great excluder of Black Southerners from the project of democracy in the American South. So your book also discusses some of the courageous Black journalists and newspapers that operated in the South during Jim Crow. Tell us about some of them. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about Grady and then talk about the black journalists who really pointed their finger directly at Grady. So in his newspaper coverage, in in the Atlanta Constitution's coverage of lynching, Grady himself um, wrote some articles about lynchings in which he has these really, um, uh, he he writes headlines and articles about lynchings of um, black men that are just demeaning. They, they rhyme, they're, they're meant to be humorous. Um, and in fact, one of his uh, former professors at the University of Georgia writes him a letter. It's in Grady's uh, personal papers at Emory University. This professor writes him a letter and says, this is beneath you. Um, this kind of coverage, this the way you're treating human life in your newspaper is, is immoral. Um, 
And then, of course, the Atlanta Constitution's uh, lynching practices that Grady helps develop during the 1880s. By the time we get to the early 20th century in 19, or the late 19th century, I believe it's in the, in the late 1890s with the lynching of Sam Hose, the Atlanta Constitution is actually participating in fomenting one of the most brutal um, lynchings that, that we have. Um, and there were so many brutal ones. Um, it was a, a, a major spectacle lynching. The Atlanta Constitution fo uh, fomented and, and the lynching across several weeks as uh, posses were, were pursuing this unfortunate person. Um, and, and then in, in even advertised special trains to the, to the spectacle lynching in the pages of, of the paper. Um, so Grady wasn't alive at that time. He died in 1889 and expectedly at the early age of 39, but his, you know, he helped put in place some of these practices that then became uh, what they became later in the early, in the late 19th century. And then in the early 20th century, um, practices of um, just fomenting racial violence that were part of the 1906 Atlanta race riots that the Atlanta Constitution and the Atlanta and other Atlanta newspapers were deeply implicated in. Um, and Grady also was one of the great defenders of the convict lease system in Georgia and uh, in Atlanta. And his, even though his best friend, Robert Alston, died in this really bizarre, absolutely, he, Robert Alston is a former newspaper partner of Grady's in Rome, at a newspaper in Rome. Um, even though Robert Alston was killed in this very bizarre um, incident at the State House in Georgia, of all things, um, under the governor that great Alfred Colquitt that Grady helped uh, reelect in, in 1880. Uh, and, and Robert Alston, what he had uh, revealed all kinds of horrors um, of the convict leasing system. Henry Grady, in the pages of the Atlanta Constitution, during his entire tenure as managing editor of the newspaper, he defended convict leasing. He wrote about it. He defended it over and over again. And it stands to good reason why he did it, because the members of the Atlanta ring, um, John Gordon, Alfred Colquitt, Joe Brown, who were you know, trading seats in the U.S. Senate and in the governor's office, every single one of them benefited from convict labor and the convict lease, especially Joe Brown, who owned Dade Coal Company and was one of the most notorious um, abusers of the convict lease system in his many, many coal mines and made huge amounts of money um, at the time, even uh, it was millions of dollars. Um, and so his political ring had deep financial ties to the convict lease system and Grady had a had a reason to protect it on their behalf. So how did the black press work to try to counter all of this? That is your question, original, and let me answer that one. I got so involved in talking about what Grady was up to. Um, so the black press saw clearly what Grady was doing um, and, and, and how Grady's New South ideology was being used to uh, to to put um, to put obstacles in the way of 
black Southerners who were trying to hang on to the political gains they had made during Reconstruction and the economic gains and to continue having some degree of freedom and, oppor and opportunity, both in terms of education, in terms of social life, and in terms of um, politics and, and financial opportunities. Um, so T. Thomas Fortune, for example, he was uh, a really militant black newspaper editor and leader uh, in New York City. He owned the New York Age, the New York Freeman, the New York Globe. Uh, he covered Grady's New South ideology and Grady's, um, what Grady was up to quite well. And in fact, wrote a good bit about Grady's protection of the convict lease. Um, and held him responsible for that and also for his New South speeches in which he um, upheld white supremacy and actively lobbied for the disenfranchisement of, of black men in the South, black voters. And so T. Thomas Fortune again and again, and he saw Grady as uh, an enemy of Black aspiration and Black Southerners and Black Americans and the Democratic project. And he called them out repeatedly. Ida B. Wells and her lynching coverage, she called out Grady and drew a direct line between Henry Grady's New South ideology and lynching practices. And in fact, in so much of her lynching coverage, she actually pulls, she points out that the white press um, as these many of the white newspapers of the South who are uh, mouthpieces for New South ideology are also very active in lynchings. And so you have journalists like Ida B. Wells and T. Thomas Fortune taking on Grady directly um, and the New South ideology. You had journalists in the South itself who were actively taking on, if not Grady, other. Um, so in other white supremacists and, and the Democratic Party stratagems and business interests. So in, uh, in North Carolina, you had Alexander Manley, who was the editor, publisher of the Daily Record in Wilmington, North Carolina, who stood up to the Democratic Party's efforts to steal the election of 1898 and in fact challenged um, what was their the big lie that they told, which was that white, or that uh, black men in North Carolina were sexually assaulting white women rampantly. And this, of course, was a big lie that they, the Democratic Party used. It's even in their handbook, in their party campaign handbook of 1898 to drive a wedge between white populists and black Republicans who had joined forces in the fusionist movement in North Carolina to gain political power in the governor's office in North Carolina and in the state legislature. So you actually have this movement where white and black North Carolinians have understood that they have shared interests against the white elite, the democratic elite in North Carolina, um, that they have these shared economic interests and that if they join political forces, they can improve education, they can improve uh, economic opportunities for the bulk of North Carolinians. Uh, but the Democratic Party uses, um, you know, drives a wedge using this, this, uh, this old 
canard, this old big lie that was so popular across so many decades um, of the white supremacist South that um, to justify this, this idea that black men, this big lie that black men um, are sexually assaulting white women wantonly. Um, and they use this, they use this big lie and Alexander Manley exposes the lie for what it is in his, in his newspaper and says, well, in fact, all you have to do is look around the South to see that white men have often, in fact, been such, have often sexually assaulted black women. Um, and he himself was the product of, um, of, of such a, a union, uh, what, you know, down in his um in his heritage i said I shouldn't say the term union he he himself was the um product of 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 such um a thing and so you know he he was threatened uh and he was he was exiled from and his press was burnt down when uh the white supremacists came to wilmington and took over the city government and killed we don't know how many black people in the city of Wilmington and um, many, many more black people in Wilmington left forever uh, be because uh, it, it was the writing was on the wall that the white supremacists had taken over their city. So I think this is a really critical line in the book's forward. Popular media in the southern states played a profound role in crafting white supremacy and its many justifications among whites as everyday, quote, common sense. You also note that, of course, this influence went beyond the South. So what do you want the journalism industry, the newspaper industry today, to understand about its role in racism? Well, I think I, think I want the... I want journalists today in the news industry today, and very importantly, institutions of the news today, to look critically at the past, to understand that journalism is not naturally or intrinsically democratic, that it has to be made to serve democratic ends, that um, if we look at the history that we tell in journalism and Jim Crow, it's very clear that not only were um, very powerful white news institutions and leaders in the South and elsewhere, frankly, using their news institutions um, to build white supremacy, to, um, to support notions of racial caste, to uh, build a political and social system that was anything but democratic. Um, but, but they were they were also these uh, they were institutions who were not serving the public good. They were not serving the public values of and civil ideals of democracy. And so I, I think it's just really critical for news institutions to understand this history, to understand that journalism has often um, has often served racist ends, but also anti-democratic ends. So our final question of the show that we ask all of our guests is, why does journalism history matter? Oh, Terry, I love that y'all asked that question. Um, 
I think for me, and I think it matters for tons of reasons, <laughs> but here's just one reason it matters. Um, and it matters because journalism is, it, it's the way by which most of us learn about the world around us. It's the way most of us learn about public affairs. It's the way we learn about culture. It's the way we learn about um, public policy and foreign affairs. It's it's the way by which we, we know the world. And so if that's true, then, this, then journalism is a force in all of our lives. And it has been in our present lives and it was in the past. And if we're going to understand our present moment, we also need to look to the past. We need to understand in the past how journalism operated soft power, but also how journalism, the industry, also operated hard power, um, exercised hard, hard power, especially in the in the realm of politics and in the realm of the economy. And journalism itself is just wrapped up. It's shot through how democracy operates. And so, you know, we like to think of journalism as the guardrails of democracy. That that's a it's a wonderful vision. And I think in many instances, journalism has been the guardrail of democracy. I, I see in our own moment, I've seen so much brilliant, important, critical journalism that has served the values of democracy. I also see that in the past, but also in the past, I've seen a great many moments and uh, not just moments, but uh, institutions, uh, institutions and structures, um, huge episodes of the past across large sections of the country. I'm thinking right now of the American South, the story we tell in journalism and Jim Crow, um, where you had uh, a very powerful journalism, white journalism, newspaper journalism that was anti-Black and anti-democratic, and it served the interests of building a, a nearly totalitarian regime in the South, a kind of authoritarian power structure in the South, a one-party white Democratic Party South. The Democratic Party then, of course, was uh, not the same as the Democratic Party today. Um, and so we need to understand that history. We need to understand that journalism is not inherently democratic, uh, that we have to work really hard to make it democratic, that objective, just calling journalism objective, just saying that um, journalism is based on facts. Um, and in fact, having a journalism based on facts, we need to recognize that those facts are always interpreted. And we need to understand too, that uh, that sometimes journalism or what we call we think of as journalism may well be serving goals that we don't think of as proper goals for journalism. And so how do we it how do we reconcile how, how do we build a journalism that is worthy of the name? Uh, how do we uh, make sure that in our public sphere and in our politics we have the kind of journalism, that serves democratic values. I think that that's really, really important. And when I'm writing journalism history these days, that's always at the front of my mind. I'm always thinking, what would it look like? How can we remake journalism, talk about journalism 
um, develop journal values for journalism that are oriented toward democracy, towards serving democracy? What would that look like? And I certainly don't have the answers to that, but that's a conversation I want to have with anyone who wants to have it, uh, my students, but also um, other historians and certainly um, members of the public and members of the news industry today. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. And we look forward uh, to having your book out right in time for the holidays. Thanks so much, Terry. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Finneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck.